Jim Robbins, and this is the Good and Noble Heart Podcast. And today is the last segment of the calling series that Gary Barklow and I are doing, and it's about journey. And I think it would be particularly helpful because one of the myths that can creep into our um, inner life when it comes to calling is, I should be where that person is. In other words, you look at somebody else's life, and you assume that you should already be at the place they are in their calling, in their understanding of who they are, that you should have the kind of clarity they have about who they are and what they're called to. And that's a really destructive myth. So I think today's discussion about journey will be particularly helpful. And um, Gary just came out with a new book. It's called It's Your Call, What Are You Doing Here? Gary, it's great to be together again. Jim, it is good to talk again. It's been way too long, and it, I don't always want these podcasts to be the only reason we talk, but they're always good. Absolutely. Um, and, and I think that this has been such a rich discussion because I think as people will find, um, as they would with your book, that the typical approach to calling where you take a personality assessment or spiritual gifts inventory and you assume automatically that you know where you're going to get plugged in, so to speak, it's it's marginally helpful if that, and it leaves a lot of questions unanswered and a lot of context that um, remains hidden if that's all you do to, to try and discern your call. So let's dig into this a little bit, this aspect of journey. Um, there's, this, there's this idea that um, God will often use a particular kind of process with us so that he can bring us to the next thing, so that he can perhaps expose some things, not necessarily sin, not necessarily to, to show us up, but just to kind of get rid of uh, assumptions we have that prevent us from really living in our calling. And the way you put it is oftentimes he'll begin um, by disrupting, dismantling, and then rebuilding and restoring. So let's start with that and from that go to perhaps our own journeys of kind of so people can see over the years, even decades, that this wasn't just an overnight thing. We didn't just somehow automatically come into our calling and the great clarity that we have today. But let's go into this aspect of disrupting, dismantling, rebuilding, and restoring that God will often use. Yeah, and this is such an important, as you said, an important idea, this idea of journey, because... Again, you know, we often hear the story of someone finding their calling, as they might say. And um, and, and often, you know, they've got 20 minutes to explain this or an hour or 10 minutes or something. And so we always walk away. We often walk away with the impression that that, uh, that person just has this epiphany and all of a sudden now they know exactly what they're supposed to do and they're now walking in that and people fail to hear the journey, the years, the progressive revelation. As you're saying, the, God, the things that God has had to do to, to bring that person to the point where they could walk more fully, more fully, not for the first time, but more fully in their calling, the effect of their life. So this is just such a huge idea and, and an area of misunderstanding. So, yes, this, this whole idea, this process that I think God often uses, this pattern, of disrupt, dismantle, rebuild, and restore. Um, yeah, so, so the disrupting thing. I, 
you know, there because of the world as we've talked about, the world that we live in, um, this world, the scripture says that Satan, the prince of this world, is over and is architected in such a way to play out to our flesh and sin and all these things. And then, and then, of course, we do have this enemy here on this planet, Satan, that there is a whole lot of, of unnecessary, harmful, and, you know, and, and evil things that have built themselves around our life that we've accepted, <clears throat> that have been, you know, as my friend Michael Thompson says, uh, you know, has been brought to the front door of our heart by UPS or FedEx, and we keep signing for these packages and taking them on. <laughs> and, and God has to come back and say, look, I've got to get that package and walk it outside your door and leave it at the curb for the trash to pick up because this is hurting your life, you know, this this way of seeing life, this way of acting now that you've adopted because you think, oh, this, this is, you've been told this is the way a good Christian man or woman lives or this is, you know, how a good churchgoer uh, creates their life and so on. And and how does that happen in reference to our calling? Um, let's just take – why don't we jump into this then? Um, why don't we start with what Brent Curtis said to you about eight years ago? Um, and, that, and that was one of those packages left at your door that would have killed your heart if you had lived under it. What was that message? Yeah, he, he – uh, he, he just said to me one day, in fact, it was in a small group. We had a small group. We called it a covenant group. We got together every week and just had time to talk, pray, laugh, celebrate, go after each other's hearts, whatever was necessary. And he said to me, obviously this was years and years ago, but he said to me, Gary, um, you are like a pack horse. And, and, and I really didn't know what he meant at that moment. I... Because part of me said, well, pack horse is a great thing. I mean, it allows people to take a journey when you have a horse that will carry things. And yet, I knew Brent well enough, and I knew that he knew me well enough that he was pointing out something in my life that was not good, that it was in the realm of living just for the sake of duty and obligation and and, and trying to get people to um, accept me and include me. Um, and it really was over the years after that statement that I started realizing that I had I had taken on both a work ethic and a life ethic. And, and the work ethic was um, when I work, I will work harder than you, I will do more than you, I will carry my own load, and I will carry yours, um, and I will show you that you need me and I'm valuable. And that was both a work ethic and it was a life ethic because what I realized over years is that had been also uh, what I had come to believe gave me a place in this world, both with people as well as a sense of significance. That if I just carried, you know, everybody's stuff and helped them with it, that I would be somebody. And and that was something that God definitely had to uh, disrupted my life, this way of believing and living, and then just start to dismantle it. And so what did he actually do to, um, you know, you know, as so often happens, God will speak something, but uh, our sort of spiritual memory isn't, isn't that long, or we don't realize its significance at the time, so we kind of put it on a shelf 
you know, in the back of our heart. What did God do to make that really physically concrete to you? What what did that back backpacking trip look like where he brought it back again? Okay, yeah, yeah. And and let me let me throw in some time in this so that there's there people have this kind of reference to how long ago this was. When Brent said this to me, that was probably 22, 23 years ago from now um, that he first said that to me. And I started wrestling with that. But kind of it, it kind of went in and out of my memory, as you said. It was one of those things. But then probably it was then, I would say, 11 or 12 years ago from now that um, I was on a uh, backpacking trip with some friends of mine. And it, this was a five-day trip, and so now this is um, day four, coming down. Uh, it's the last leg of the, the backpacking trip. And so we're coming down off this huge, you know, hike that we've been taking. And and what I realized is as we're walking, and we're going to have to walk probably five to six hours this day to get to our final base camp before we then do the last trek down to the car, um, this backpack of mine, I mean, it's literally feeling heavier and heavier. My shoulders are hurting, unlike they had done every other day. Um, and my legs are hurting, and it, I'm just convinced my backpack is getting heavier. And so when we finally get to this, this base camp, um, I mean, this has been going on for hours with me in this, on this walk, and, and I'm thinking, what is this? Is it really getting heavy? God, what are, are you up to something? What is going on here? So we get to this base camp, and um, I immediately take out the, the, the kind of communal things I'm carrying. I might have had the, the tent poles or whatever or something. We all broke up everything and carried it together. And so I got these things out of my backpack, and I just started walking quickly or running into the woods because something was about to erupt in me, in my heart. I could feel it happening. So I got as far as away as I could from all the other guys, and um, and as I reached this point where I knew, okay, this this is where I'm alone, I just started to erupt in tears, just weeping. And I just kind of fell against this tree and slid down the tree, and I was sitting on the ground weeping. And as I was doing that, I just heard God say to me, is it heavy enough yet? Mm-hmm. And I, that just made me weep all the more. And I didn't really know what God meant. I guess on the on the conscious level, but unconsciously I thought I think I think unconsciously I didn't know what he was talking about. And so I kept weeping and weeping and kind of just kept playing over that sentence, is, is this heavy enough yet? And I realized that what it what God was speaking to was all that I was carrying. And I was carrying my wife and her happiness and her health. I was carrying my children, their happiness and what they would become. I was carrying our finances and my life and and, and God was saying, when are you going to stop carrying everybody's stuff? What does that feel like, Gary? And I realized, now I honestly don't know, Jim, how he did this, but I realized that this backpack that was getting heavier and heavier and was killing my shoulders, that God was doing that as a, as a, a, um, a metaphor, a picture saying, Gary, I'm telling you, you're a pack horse. Stop carrying everything. And that was a pretty significant point of release in my life. Yeah, it's as if God is saying, Gary, I want you to experience in your body what your heart has been carrying all these years. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I was going to say, and God is just really good at that, isn't he, Jim? I mean, he will come at us from every point that he has to. I mean, physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, socially, financially. I mean, in order to disrupt and to dismantle those things that we're still living under. So, I mean, I don't know how he made this backpack heavier. And he must have, because I'm not I'm not delusional. <laughs> I'm not. But man, did he use that to get my attention. So if that's kind of the beginning where he's starting to disrupt and dismantle, uh, and I know this is hugely unfair in the space of a podcast segment to unpack a, a person's journey over 20 years, but what then did he start to do to restore? What what were some of the events or messages or or people that he used to start rebuilding your true identity? Okay. Yeah, great question. Because obviously the larger story is not the disrupt and dismantle. It's it's getting to the point of restore and release. And so yeah, so okay. So let me give you a let me give you two uh stories very close together. And these are these were somewhere like nine and ten years ago from now. Um <clears throat> I was about to do a um a Wild Heart Retreat, one of our very first ones. Um, and John Eldridge had called me on the phone. We were working out of our homes at the time, and he called me on the phone at my house and said, hey, I was praying for the retreat that we're leaving for tomorrow and I was praying for you and, you know, all the guys in it. And as I was praying for you, Gary, I sensed that God said he, he wanted you to ask him what you think of yourself. And I thought, well, that, that's a fascinating question. Ask God, what do I think of myself? And he knows my inner thoughts, so I thought, okay. So I got off the phone. I just said, okay, God, what do I think of myself? And instantly I had a picture of Corporal O'Reilly from the TV series MASH. You know, I, I wasn't watching TV. I hadn't watched that night, night before. I don't know the last time I had seen any of those, you know, reruns of that episode. But God put that picture of Corporal O'Reilly in my mind instantly, and I knew he was right. Because, as you know, when you Corporal O'Reilly, he was liked and he was included because he was a man who could get things done for others, for the surgeons, for other people. He wasn't really the warrior. He wasn't a surgeon. He wasn't a great leader. He was this kind of goofy little guy who, you know, if they needed medical supplies, he could figure out where they are and get them, either steal them or barter for them. If the guys needed, you know... Uh, Whiskey, he could go get that. He Whatever was needed, he could get. And therefore, he was included in the group. He really was a pack horse. And I thought, oh, my goodness, God is coming back again to say, Gary, you're still living like this. This is the image you have of yourself. We have to get that off of you. Okay, so a little less than a year later, now let me turn the page to the, to the now uh, rebuilding. Um, I'm coming back from a retreat that, uh, Ransom Hart was doing. It was actually the Sacred Romance Retreat. I was not a speaker there, but I came along to help with the, the volunteers that were helping with registration and the resource table and everything else. And So uh, at the beginning of the retreat, people are coming in and we're registering them and some are milling around some of the resources there. And Well, it came time for the, the evening session to start. This was Friday evening. And uh, so everybody started heading in. It was kind of the... the where the teaching session was, there was an inner chamber to this building. So you literally went through two sets of doors into this inner chamber that was kind of soundproof and lightproof. And, and I realized that as everybody went in, 
that I was going to have to stay out and, and just kind of watch over all these resources and everything else that was set up out here. And so um, I stayed out there, as I should. It was my job. But, but instantly I started hearing, see, Gary, this is what your life is like. See, you're here to give everybody else a place to speak. The real action is in there, and you're not in there. You never will be. You just do what has to be done for them. That's as close as you're going to get to any weightiness to your life. Well, okay, so the, that's happening to me all weekend long because this happens repeatedly. So at the end of the retreat, we run for the airplane uh, to fly back from Minnesota back to Colorado. And everyone's going to sleep. It's a night flight, and so I'm wide awake. So I, I go find another seat where I could turn a light on and not disturb anybody. And I pull out a book out of my briefcase that I brought with me. And it was a book that was given to me years ago, um, and it's called D-Day by Stephen Ambrose. And I had read a couple chapters and then just got distracted. Not, not out of, uh, I love the book. It wasn't that I didn't like it. I just got distracted. So I opened the book, and I saw where I had dog-eared one of the pages, where I had stopped. And, and where I'd stopped was, I think, at the end of Chapter 2. And so I started reading Chapter 3. And it was a great chapter. It was about, it was called The Generals. And it was really about the life, the upbringing of, of General Eisenhower, the, the general, the commander of the, the, uh, uh, the forces. And then, then you had Rommel, who was over the, the German army. And it went through their lives. And I, I was just fascinated. I've always been fascinated by life stages and how do people grow up and how do they become what they are. When I was done with that chapter, because it was so good, I didn't want to read anymore. I just wanted to take that in. I turned the light off, put my seat back, put the book away. And as soon as I did, I, I heard the whisper of God in my ear say, Gary, you are my Eisenhower. And I started to weep, just started to weep. And, and I didn't know exactly what God meant, except that, except that he spoke the opposite of Corporal O'Reilly. He did, it wasn't this little guy that was only included because of what he could get done for others. This was Eisenhower who brought the weightiness and the kindness and the skill and the perspective and the warrior heart that he had to the world that it made a difference. Now, I, I, I was not thinking then, and I do not believe now, that I'm, I'm the Eisenhower of the kingdom of God. In no way. But what he was speaking to was Gary... You are not what you have believed all these years. You are more than that. You have the heart of Eisenhower. And, and that spoke volumes to me. He was now in the rebuilding process of who I was. Wow. Um, and uh, perhaps uh, what I noticed in, in, in your journey was that um, a lot of times, as God has done with my own life, He'll start to say something, but he won't tell you all of it. He won't give you the full picture, like, you are my Eisenhower. But I'm not going to unpack all of that right now. There's, there's another time for that. So was there a follow-up to that <laughs> where um, God began to reveal a little bit more about, what, what do you mean I'm in your Eisenhower? Yeah, yeah, great, great question. Okay. So, yeah, let, let me give you one of those. Um, and, and, in fact, now, actually what I'm about to describe to you that God led me through, this is what I do with people in the calling intensive, and it's, it's remarkable. I mean, this was God's idea. So I was, uh, this was a, a 
several years after that, several, I mean three or four years after that, um, I was going to get um, three days and two nights away with God. And I try to do this at least once a year. Um, and, and as best of my intention, it always ends up just once a year instead of several times a year for some reason. So uh, I uh, called a friend of mine and I said, hey, could, could I use your place out here while you're not here to get along with God? And he said, oh, yeah, you bet you could do that. So a couple weeks before um, when I was going to do that, this idea came to me. It was, an, it was from God. And the idea was, you, you know, we're, so many of us are familiar about how we are moved by a story, and specifically by movies. You know, we go see some movie, and our heart resonates with it, and we think, oh, man, it brings us to tears, or we're excited. And something says to us, God says to us through that movie, um, that is speaking about who you are and why you're here in a, in a, in a general way, as a metaphor. And, and so that's very powerful. But I thought what's really difficult with that is we often don't know exactly what it is that did move us. Was it the actor and the character he was? Was it the story theme? Was it the specific scene? Was it the music behind the scene and the way they colorized the, you know, the, the movie? And you know, there's so many things at play. And I thought it would be so powerful if you could just find a single image or single images that moved your heart, and then look at that and say, what does that mean for me? Why? Why is my heart moved? So I, uh, in, in order to do that, I went to the library and took my digital camera, and I thought, okay, I'm going to go through different magazines, and I'm going to find pictures that, that capture me. And I must have spent two hours doing that. I think I had two pictures when I was done, and really those, pic- those pictures didn't move me. I was just trying to get something. And so I left rather discouraged about this whole thing, and... Um, I called my wife, Lee, and she said, Gary, don't give the idea. It's a powerful idea. Don't walk away from this idea. So I got off the phone, and I was just praying, and I said, all right, God, what do you want me to do with this? And what came up in my heart was stock photos. I thought, genius. You know, you go on the Internet, and you type in stock photos, and all these companies that come up that have thousands, hundreds of thousands of photos. So I got on there and just started quickly going through photos, and every time some photo grabbed my heart, I would right-click it and save it, just if it made me stop for just a second and look at it. So anyway, I did this. I ended up taking probably up to my friend's house just to go be with God. I probably took 60, 70 pictures up with me, just small little pictures that I printed. I put them on a piece of paper, taped them up there, and then I started writing around those pictures what it was that moved me. Why did I, as best as I could figure out, why did that picture capture me? And so I had words written around all the pictures. So I had done this. This this took probably two hours to do, just sitting there by myself doing this. And I kind of felt God kind of saying, Gary, just now just stop for a while. Relax a little bit. Just stop. So then I, then I sensed God say, go back and I want you to read that chapter in, in uh, D-Day once again. Because I, I sensed that God said, bring the book with you again. And this is years later. And as I did, I, I underlined every word that described Eisenhower. And then God said to me, now, Gary, look at the words you've underlined and look at the words around the pictures. And, Jim, they were almost identical. I mean, not the identical word, but the identical meanings. I mean, it was unbelievable. It just surprised me. And God said, see, I told you, I have written certain things in your heart that I want you to do the effect of your life. 
and it's not being a pack horse. That's not what it is. And so once again, he, he, you know, he came back and he said, see, I, I had to disrupt your life to dismantle this lie about who you are. And, so, and, and I've been restoring this in you and I'm releasing this effect that you have now seen around all these images that have captured you. That describes what the effect of your life is on this earth. So here he's saying, now I'm releasing with you, releasing you with more clarity about who you are. Wow. <laughs> Talk about God making it exceedingly clear. Um, but I know it just takes that. Um, you know, I think, and I don't, you know, I don't think it's because we're idiots. I, I really don't. I think it's because the battle against our heart has been going on for so long. And the lies, the, the barbs have just got so embedded into our sense of who we are that it takes that kind of disrupting and dismantling, that kind of really clear, let me make this clear to you. Because the, the, the war against our heart is just so fierce and entrenched that it takes that corruption. Um, I'm curious, what were some of the words that, that you found, that you underlined both about the commanders in the book and that you wrote around the pictures? What were some of those that, that, that you are now living from today? Well, um, yeah, some of those words. One was often in, in a lot of my pictures, there was this idea of perspective, um, clarity, um, uh, sight kind of thing. So I mean, I had some I had some really odd pictures. I mean, I had a picture of these guys sitting in front of multiple screens or monitors, and I, I couldn't tell by the picture exactly what they were monitoring, but there was this idea that there was activity going on, and they had all these different viewpoints of what was going on, whether that was weather, or whether that was some you know military action happening, or or whether it was many scenes of a movie that they were producing and putting together, whatever it was, it was perspective to understand what was happening. And I was just captured by this because I love to do that. And, and then you look at Eisenhower's life, and Eisenhower had this unique perspective into the larger story of what was going on, the perspective of the different allied forces and what their strengths were, and what did these combined strengths equate to? What did they equal? What did they bring together? How could this be brought against the enemy to bring victory? And I thought, okay, perspective, that's huge. I love the word. And, I, and obviously I love the image of it because those pictures, I had three or four of those kind of pictures that captured me. Um, another uh, um, type of picture that I had, and I had several of these, uh, pictures of two or three physicians that were over a patient, like in the surgery room, um, or, or standing around and looking at these, these uh, x-rays, these images of the person. I was just captured by it. I didn't look for these pictures, but something grabbed me. And I thought, see, that's what I love to do. I love to be with a group of people looking at somebody's life and saying, what do you see? Here's what I'm seeing. What do you see? And then if each person looks at that, they go, we come together and we go, that's it. We've identified either what is wrong and preventing health right now or strength, or we've identified what the strength of their life really is. See, I love that. So, so therefore today, I mean, what I speak on and what I've written on in the book, It's Your Call, 
is how do you look at your life? How do you interpret your life? What are you looking at? And, of course, that's what we do in the calling retreat and even more in the calling intensive where by the very experience of that, as, as I lead them through it, they realize I can see into another person's life as well. I see what's in the way of the glory of their life, and now I see the glory of their life. And we, and we stand together around this one person, or to bring it back into the metaphor, the patient, and then we speak into that. Um, that I love doing that. I mean, and that's, that's what I do now. I mean, I'm not doing it because God told me to do it. God was revealing what was already in my heart, and I'm simply doing what I love now. Yeah, there's this there's this shift between, I mean, if all you're living is as a pack horse, what you have there is duty. You have, I will, I will shoulder these things out of duty and uh, out of wounding because I, I believe that that will gain me validation, approval with, with guys that are around me or whoever it is so that I can enter their circle. But then, as God has restored that, what you have now is desire. You, uh, and, and, I mean, as you so well say, what you are called to do is what you most want to do, which is totally foreign to most Christians because they're, they're told to doubt and dismiss their heart, dismiss their desires because they, well, of course, that would be selfish. Well, no, those are God-given desires. And so that's, that's what God is doing He's awakening the desire and restoring that desire so that you can live from it. So, yeah, that's just interesting. Even in the language that you're using to describe this journey, it went from this pack horse, duty-driven, um, the uneasy yoke <laughs> to the yoke of desire and the easy yoke, the one that fits you. Hmm. Boy, that's really good. That's really good. Yeah, I, I've never thought about that. And, and, you know, the one thing I want to say also with this is that what, what I, you know, there are times, Jim, I know you do this often, and there are times with me when God says, I need you to help carry some of their burden right now. And we do that. We, we do that because we're called to do that occasionally for a person when they need someone to help carry their load. The difference being with the pack horse idea, as, as God was kind of saying this to me throughout all these years, was the idea of a pack horse that has nothing to offer, only the ability to carry other people's offerings or other people's uh, weight or, or issues or whatever that is. And, and instead of having knowing that I've got something to offer myself, not just carry other people's stuff. So, yeah, I don't want to give people the impression that, oh, we don't carry anybody's stuff, we just carry our own. No, there's times when we have to carry another person's burden. But if you believe that you have nothing more to bring to this world and to carry other people's stuff, that, that's what's wrong. That's how the evil one has, uh, has distorted the idea of humility, you know, and grace and mercy. Because really what that, the pack horse speaks of, I have nothing, I am nothing. And, and I had a friend of me say years, a couple of years ago, I said, see, you've gone from pack horse to racehorse. <laughs> I really like that. <laughs> I really like that. And, and so this, this goes way back now to our earlier conversations with this Oswald Chambers quote where he says, it cannot be stated definitely what the call of God is to because his call is to be in comradeship with himself for his own purposes. And the test is to believe that God knows what he is after. You know, and, and that is so true because these years I went through very briefly 
you know, these 20-something years, I mean, the, the biggest test for me in my faith and with God was to believe that God knew what he was after, right? That, he, this is all, that God is after something that's good. He is dismantling, he is disrupting and dismantling for a very good reason. And, and it's to restore and release me, you know. It's, I know the plans I have for you, they're for your welfare, not for your calamity. So that believing that God knows what he is after in his disrupting, dismantling, uh, that he is getting to uh, restoring and releasing. You know, there's something, uh, even just as I'm processing your journey, there's something that's kind of striking to me, because I know that one of your favorite movies is Seabiscuit. And Seabiscuit is about a horse, pack horse, horse. But Seabiscuit's not a pack horse, but he's been dismissed as if he he might as well have been a pack horse. You know, he was he was trained to lose so that others could win. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, just that you were drawn to that movie. Yeah, you know, that's, that's really true because you're right, you're right. In the movie, he was dismissed by everyone as useless and, and, and therefore right. At, at, the, at the worst, um, you know, he did nothing. At the best, he was, like you said, he was put in a races where he would lose, as the, as the movie says, in head-to-head duels in order to boost the confidence of the other horse, you know. And, uh, and you're right. He had to go through major disruption, dismantling the, the breaking of its leg, you know, of a sea biscuit's leg, and then having to come back from that to, to the world to go, oh, my goodness, that's one of the most remarkable horses we've ever seen, you know. He's glorious. Mm. Yeah. You know, and Gary, I can't imagine how many hundreds and thousands of lives would be different if you would allowed that pack horse to be the defining sentence of your life. I mean, if you had stayed there and allowed that to embed itself, um, you know, what would be left undone in the kingdom in terms of the glory of your own life and the glory of others' lives that your message has touched, including mine, I don't, I mean, I hate to think what that would have been like. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And, you know, and, and obviously the same for your your life and for believers, that it would just be so easy to stay with this this image, this deep-hearted belief that the world and the evil one has given us. It's just easy to stay there because, you know, Satan has set up the system where everything reinforces that and and not only is it a sad life, um, but there is something significant that was never offered to the world that was designed to be offered to the world, to be released, you know. And and I know from you and I talking, and I'm sure the, your, your listeners know because you're, you're very transparent with your life, you know, of, of how you have gone through so much of, of the same thing, the, the disruption, disrupting of God and the dismantling and then the restoring and the rebuilding, the releasing, you know, and, and same with you. I mean, what you bring to people through these podcasts and through your writing, you know, is a voice seldom heard or brought out there in this world. Uh, and it's it's absolutely needed. So I'm so thankful that you believe that God knew what he was after and you stayed in this, you know. Well, I, I appreciate that. I, and it's it's not just a casual appreciation either. Um 
and perhaps I could kind of go into that a little bit with with my own journey because I think yeah. like your journey, um, what wounded me in the beginning, the message was a message of dismissal, which, in other words, is a message of rejection. And so the, my wound, the message of my wound going way back was, you know, your desires for your life don't matter. It doesn't matter what you want to offer. And truthfully, no one wants it anyway. So that's the thread that runs throughout, you know, the last 20 or so years of my life. And so the beginning... Um, the beginning of that, God, I don't know if there's a, I don't know if it follows the sequence of, of, um, you know, disrupting and then rebuilding, restoring chronologically. I think for me, there have been times of both going on because sometimes it, it needs further exposure, further disrupting, even after mm-hmm. you've received a certain amount of restoration and clarity. But 20 years ago, um, I met um, a guy who would really become my mentor back then and for several years. And um, I don't know why, but he he invited me into friendship with him and with his family. And uh, we would go hiking together. We would track deer. We would have, you know, conversations about the heart, uh, about God. We'd, we'd be the last ones in the restaurant until it closed kind of a thing just because we were caught up in conversation then he he saw something in me that I wasn't aware of at the time, and he said, "I, Jim, I really see a discernment in you." And um, I don't think I understood quite what he meant, really. And I, for some reason, I didn't follow up what he said. But um, as, as the twenty years have unfolded, I kind of understand a little bit about that and how that works into what I like to do today. So God has begun with this um, guy that became my mentor and said, you know, I, I think you ought to go to seminary. Now, um, at this, around the same time, um, a member of the church that I grew up in came up to me um, and said, Jim, I want to sit down and have a conversation with you. Now, he's never done that before. I really thought it, he ended – he's a, the dean of a theology at a, a local um, seminary. I thought he was going to offer me a job because I didn't have any work at that point. And so I sat down with him and he said, we have this thing called the trial year scholarship where um, we think people who might be candidates for pastor will pay for your first year. All you have to pay for is books. I literally had nothing else going on. I had no aspirations. I didn't know whether or not I wanted to be a pastor at that point. So I said, sure, I'll give it a shot. Um, it turned out not to be the the place where I ended up getting my degree from. I ended up switching to another seminary that really kind of fit me better, again, at the recommendation of my mentor. But God was opening these doors for me at, at a time when I really had no compass. I had really no sense of my unique purpose, what I was called to. I just did anything better. So uh, 15 years ago, I became a pastor um, first of two very, very small country churches in Florida where I was at the time, and then as an associate pastor in kind of a budding local megachurch kind of atmosphere. And I couldn't make it work to save my life. I couldn't, I couldn't find my place in that system. Um, the pastoral persona felt like a millstone around my neck because 
really the pastoral paradigm is you will do what anyone expects you to do. You will follow whatever script is handed to you. And even 15 years ago, I, I knew that wasn't what God had for me. I knew there was something more, more narrowly defined, something that had to do with what he put inside me. And I really wanted to be a teaching pastor. But my district superintendent said, no, they're just, I don't know who's telling you that stuff about being able to find something unique like that, but, you know, somebody's feeding you a line. That just doesn't exist. And um, I couldn't find my place, nor did they want me to, honestly. Uh, there was no room for individuals or leaders who had a well-defined sense of calling or even a beginning sense of calling. So that created a lot of friction with the leadership that I ended up serving under, and I was essentially thrown out of the system um, because I was trying to live from my heart, from from this calling that I knew God was developing in me. Mm-hmm. And um, talk about a um, you know a, dev- a def- defining event, or um, writers call it an inciting incident. It's something that forces the character in the story to go one way or another. It is so disruptive that you can't go backwards. You have to go forward in some manner. Um, it was insanely painful because once it's not just like getting fired from a job. You're getting fired from a spiritual system that represents God. And if you and if if you see it as something that is identified with the voice of God Himself, it can kill you. Now it's not the voice of God. It's just a system that doesn't know what it's doing and doesn't want, you know, it's like the Borg Collective on Star Trek. You know, you will join us through forced assimilation. You know, there's no individuality here. Um, So that lasted, I I was actually a a pastor for maybe two and a half years. uh, And the entire time I knew this didn't fit me. Yet I, I had to fight off the shame of, oh my gosh, what is wrong with you? I mean, the senior pastor is questioning your call, questioning your legitimacy, questioning your character. Um, and, and they've thrown you out. They've asked you not to come back. And so that wound, again, is kicked into high gear. Nobody wants what you have to offer. Your desires for your life don't matter. Well, about five years ago, um, I was in Arizona who had actually gone to, uh, I think, one of the Wild at Heart boot camps. Um, and I'd met him there, and so we were um, we were in his hot tub outside, just talking. We had cigars and talking. And um, about a year before that, I had seen Lord of the Rings. I had seen the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and through that movie, like movies God has used in your life, God said you were like Aragorn. And again, if if you're talking, if if we're talking and sharing this with people who haven't really begun to hear these kinds of things. It's either going to sound arrogant (laughs) or, you know, that's kind of what you wanted to hear, so you made it up. Mm -hmm. And that is possible, but that's not what happened. There are times when you know it comes out of a certain place where you weren't looking for it, you weren't wishing for it. God just speaks in almost over your shoulder and says, you are like so-and-so. And And for me it was, you are like Aragorn, but he didn't say any more. That was that thing. He didn't he didn't unpack the whole thing at that time. And so I'm sitting a year later with my friend in the hot tub just kind of talking about stuff. We start talking about movies. And we talk about Lord of the Rings again. And um, God starts unpacking a little bit more what he means by you are my Aragorn, uh, other than just a, one of the more admirable characters in the story and kind of a hero figure 
Um, there, there were two events within that trilogy that struck me. One is when um, King Theoden, who is under the spell of Wormtongue, um, the, basically the voice of the enemy, he is essentially a dead carcass with a, with a heartbeat. He um, has lost his mind. He has lost his identity, uh, forfeited his kingship, and, and his kingdom is in ruins. And the enemy is at his doorstep, or about to be at his doorstep. And Aragorn, a younger man who one day will be king, but doesn't have any position of power or title whatsoever, says to him, because Theoden is reluctant, uh, he's, he's actually been freed now. He's um, come out of the curse because Gandalf the, the wizard sets him free from that curse. But he's still reluctant to enter into battle with his people. And Aragorn says, um, the enemy, you know, war is upon you whether you would wish it or not. Now, he's not being cocky, he's not being arrogant, but he, the younger man, is speaking truth to an older guy in the system who has the title, the position, authority, and power, but is unwilling to act in that truth. So that's one event. The other was in the last um, of this trilogy series where... Uh, Gandalf and Aragorn are on the balcony, I think of Minas Tirith, I'm not sure, but the enemy, again, once again, is the final battle. The enemy is getting close, and they don't know where, um, uh, they don't know where the story's going to go. They're doubting that Frodo is going to make it and, and be able to cast a ring into the Ring of Fire. And Gandalf, the older, the one who, again, is the one supposedly to have the wisdom looks over to Aragorn and says, you know, do you think they're going to make it? Um, and Aragorn says, what does your heart tell you? So again, the younger man without power, without authority and position and title is able to speak reality and speak truth to the one who is supposed to have had it. And as I'm talking about this in the hot tub with my friend, I just started crying because it, it struck me that God was saying, that's what I mean, you are my Aragorn. It means that though those in power, those leaderships that should have had the wisdom dismissed you and regarded you, blacklisted you, regarded you as a nuisance, you were right, Jen. <laughs> you were right. You were the one that was speaking truth into that situation. You were the one with discernment. And... Um, so again, that's an answer to God is starting to, to restore and rebuild, answer the wound of no one, want, no one wants what you have to offer. Your desires don't matter. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll just share one more um, piece, because I think for me, different names that God has given me has, have answered different parts of my journey. Some of those names have answered my wound. Some of those, uh, in this case, have have answered just nagging doubts about who I am as a man. Um, and I think all men struggle with strength. They either feel that they don't have enough strength for the situation or that they have too much, that they're too powerful, or both. Um, so uh, one of my, another movie that was really key for me was Saving Private Ryan. And I would say about mm, three to four years ago, I watched the movie again, and uh, you'll remember the, the interpreter who was not combat trained was kind of just this sniveling, weeping mess on the bottom of the stairs when they were in German territory. They were in this, 
the shot out shell of a building. And it was his job to bring ammunition up to the guys that were at the window up top, up to his comrades. Um, it was his job to guard the stairway so that a German couldn't get up. And it was his job to bring them ammunition when they needed. Well, he is so overcome with fear that a German enters the building, looks at him, laughs, and keeps walking. I mean, the guy is shaking and trembling with fear. He can't play the part that's being required of him. And the German ends up going up, surprising his friends who are in the upper room out of the window and, and, and slaughtering them, senselessly just slaughtering them. Walks back down, just dismisses the guy in the stair steps, the interpreter, keeps walking. And I had thought for a long time, that's who I am. I am that man. I am the man that doesn't have the strength to come through. Um, and about a year ago, I was... I don't, one of those things, God, it just says, kind of, I want you to watch that again. So um, I watched it, and I remembered that scene again, and I could feel it. It was visceral in me, my reaction to that scene. But then the scene went to the sniper in the tower, the guy that was picking off the enemy one by one. And it's interesting that he was quoting scripture as he was doing it. You know, Lord, make me fast and accurate. And he was quoting he was quoting the Psalms as he was doing it. And I had never thought about this guy. I always thought he was kind of cool. You know, he, he was the guy that you want to be. And all of a sudden, God says, Jim, you're that guy, not the guy in the stairs. And, again, this dam just broke within me. Um, and that was, again, restoring the doubt. Am I, am I a guy that has what it takes? Do I, can I trust my strength? So, you know, over the years, God has refined and refined, given more definition to those things that I know that I'm called to, that, um, you know, design has been an, a, a key word for me and a key um, trait of who I am, artistry, design, um, I've always been an artist. I've always been a, a professional musician. And, um, and and as a writer, I struggled with how do I articulate or, or bring together, rather, those the artistic side of me that's interested in design and, and beauty, and how do I bring together the writing side of me, which seems to be more, you know, intellectual, message-based. And uh, literally within the last year, God has shown me how those come together because I felt like two different people in the same body. So, Jim, you're kind of like a Renaissance man that that um, brings those two parts of human personality, art with intellect, together. And what is underneath both of those is this desire to create and reveal design and original intent. So whether it's something I design graphically or a music piece or a video film score or a blog post or a book, they all have to do with getting at the original intent, the original design of either that thing or a person. So that's kind of how my journey's unfolded. That, that's, that's, well, first of all, I'm just amazed by the clarity that you have right now about mm. the effect that you've been created to have using whatever type of artistry, as you just mentioned. I mean, that that's pretty remarkable clarity. I'm also really hit by the idea how, you know, when, when God has to 
disrupt and dismantle that which is false, you know, falsely been put on us. Um, I mean, he can use a hard circumstance like you shared in the beginning of, you know, being in his church and then realizing this doesn't fit me and, and just all that happened there, which was hard. Or he could he could use something which seems as simple as a scene in a movie, you know, and if, and if, <clears throat> and if we will just have our heart open to hear him, you know, now, was it as simple as just a scene in a movie? Well, it brought you to tears. That's That's more than simple, right? But it's just that... God will use all this if we'll just have our heart open to listen to him of what he's dismantling that's untrue, you know, and and, uh, and harmful to the glory of our life, as well as speaking to who what is true and who we really are. I mean, that, that whole scenario, that whole story you've just given us is remarkable. And it's so much of what you do today. I mean, the, the whole sniper uh, scene, and that's who you are, is just, I mean, as soon as you said that, I thought, yes, that is who you are. I've never seen it. I've experienced it personally. I've seen it through your writing and your video and all of these things that you've done. It's just, you know, it's just taking out one thing at a time. It's not the flailing. It's the precision, you know. So that's that's hmm. remarkable. That's remarkable. Hmm. And, of that, course, you know, that, the, the, enemy will still, the enemy will still try to obviously play out this the sentence that he has worked on you for so long with, as he does with me with mine, of, you know, well, no one really wants to hear from you because if they did, you would be a million-book author. Okay, well, first of all, how many <laughs> how many books we sell has nothing to do with the importance of the message. It just doesn't, mm. you know. Um, and so, you know, he'll still try to play that on us. And that's why, obviously, we just have to remember what he has spoken and all that. Yeah, that's good because, you know, the temptation, and it's helpful to say, whether it's you or me at this point, we don't, the clarity we have now is not the clarity we had 10 years, maybe even five years ago. Right. And, and, it's, and so people ought not to think, you know, I really wish I were where those guys are today. I wish I had their understanding of who they are. We didn't get there. Um, we didn't get there automatically. It's been years of this unfolding and and trying to be open to these various means by which God will unravel and and build into us our true identity. So um, we just got a couple minutes, unfortunately. But let's. What would you say to people? Kind of, we're at the end of this series right now. What would you say to people who maybe have kind of followed this in a little bit, taken a lot of this in? What's next? What can they do right now that isn't gimmicky, that isn't, you know, we're not going to sign them a spiritual gift test or anything like that. What can they do? Because sometimes it'll feel paralyzing to us. You'll have a desire. You say, I know that I want to discover this. I know that I want to move forward with this. But it seems overwhelming to the point where it can be paralyzing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so a couple yes, so a couple things, kind of concluding statements or ideas. Um, the first one is there is just mystery in life. So though Jim, you and I can speak with some clarity at this point in our life, and we'll have more clarity next year, I yes. hope, and we'll have more clarity <laughs> after that. I mean, we we haven't reached the clarity, you know, heights right now. We, we God has to tell us more. I mean, I still have some 
confusion and doubt in some ways about what am I supposed to be doing now and exactly what is this? So, one, everyone lives in mystery. So we just have to be careful we don't get taken out with this idea of I don't know enough. So either it's me or it's God. Okay, we all live in that. It's not you and it's not God. It's that we live in mystery. So keep that pressure off. We have to keep it off. Secondly, um, this is about, you know, as you and I have been saying, this is about a journey. This is about a walk with God. This is not about a conclusion, an answer, you know, filling out the test. It's none of that. It's, it's just we keep walking. It's just this progressive revelation about who we are. We, we really are, and, and I, I typically show this picture at the end of a Jeep trail. You see these, you know, two... Uh, 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 grooves in the ground where you can tell these jeeps have been driving through the woods and this is the tracks, these two tracks. And and, and then what you see in this picture is that the, you see this track go off and the ground, the road kind of goes down so you can't see what's beyond it and it's dark because it's in the woods. And I think that's just a picture of life that in this journey we have to keep uh, our wheels in the tracks, right? And one track is God is always always speaking to us about who we are, helping us discover what's true about us, the weightiness that we carry, the glory of our life. He's always speaking to that. The other track that we have to keep the wheels in at the same time is the track of development. He's always developing our strength of heart as he's revealing the desires of our heart. So we're going through situations and he's saying, right, you're learning perseverance now. Right, you're learning mercy. Right, you're learning gentleness. Right, you're learning perspective and all these things. He's always doing that. But we keep coming to these points of alignment in our life where God says, okay, I know you can't see where this trail goes. And in fact, I'm not going to speak more to you about who you are or the character of your heart until you realign your life with what I've already shown you. Because it won't make sense. The rest of the journey won't make sense to you. So, and, and often that, I think most often that realignment is just a small issue. It's not a big, quote, leap of faith. Sometimes it's just be more of who you are, where you are. Offer it more. You know, speak up. Offer, whatever it is. Sometimes he may say, you're going to have to leave what you're doing. But he doesn't do that all the time. And the enemy kind of accuses God of doing that, so it scares us. Um, and so there's points of realignment. And there, he, God says, great, now let me tell you some more about who you are. I mean, that's really what the Christian life looks like in walking with God. So we can take off this the pressure of this, you know, epiphany, I know now, I'm walking fully in my calling, this is it, it's all predictable. It's not it, it's not all predictable. There will be changes, you know, as we walk deeper in who we are. Um, and then and then the last thing, I, I heard, my daughter actually heard a, a pastor of a church say this phrase, which I think is so powerful. He said, we can live in the if only or the but now. And I thought that was so good because we can live in the if only I had more education, if only I didn't make that choice, if only I never had that job, if only I was given that job, if only I didn't marry this woman, if only I didn't have this debt. It goes on and on. And really what God is saying is, all right, learn from it, but really it is but now. But now here's what I'm going to do. But now I'm going to offer the strength of my life. I'm not disqualified. I am actually more trained now because of this. Yeah, I think that's really helpful because, 
especially if we break away from this idea that our calling is reduced to a job or a title Mm -hmm. um, and, and step back from that and say, no, our calling is our particular splendor, the effect we have on others when we're around them, the thing we most feel compelled to bring in any situation that comes out of us freely uh, um, and unhindered. And so what we don't want people to hear is, you know what, you, you got to find a new job. Now, you you may, I mean, God may, because of realigning, may say, okay, I've given you some clarity about who you are. Your assignment in this job is over, and, and now I want to move you on to something else. But it's not, it's, you can't be tied to that. Um, so one of the tests of, I think, calling is, will you do it whether or not you're getting paid to do it? Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with getting paid for your calling. In fact, uh, I, I rather like the idea. <laughs> um, but there's a time and a place for that, and God will unfold that as, as you journey with him and perhaps really make that possible at some point. But if that's not happening now for a person, for them to be able to say, I, I am an artist with whatever I've been given to do, you know, and I mean artist in the more general sense of the term. I have this unique thing, this unique perspective, unique way of seeing that I'm going to bring to people around me, even if I'm not getting paid for it, because that's what artists do. <laughs> they create because the act of creating it is in itself a work of glory. Right. Um, so perhaps that's, that's another thing that can be helpful where you're not getting stuck by I'm not getting paid for it, therefore it's not legitimate. Yes. Yep. Well said. That's really, really important. That's really good. Um, well, we're going to wrap it up, but um, if for those of you who really kind of want to dig in and kind of pursue this more, which I, I do recommend, Gary's book is great. It's called It's Your Call, What Are You Doing Here? Um, it's available on Amazon as well as Gary's site, thenobleheart.com. Uh, Gary, you also have your resource, your um, your audio series, The Glory of Your Life, which is really similar. So if you like to read or whether you like to hear uh, teaching sessions by audio, both of those are available. Um, Gary, this has been great. It's been rich for my own heart. Me too. I, I've just I've enjoyed talking through our lives together as we have, and it's been very rich for me as well. Thank you. Yep, you got it. And uh, Gary, we'll talk soon. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks.